All right, well, if you uh, have your Bibles with you, you can turn with me to 1 Samuel uh, chapter 25. And normally, as we've been going through 1 Samuel, we've, we've been reading at least a, a big part of the passage, if not the whole passage. But uh, this week, because of our financial meeting, uh, we're not doing that today. So uh, you'll have to track with me here. Uh, and, and hopefully you're getting the emails uh, letting you know where we're going to be each week so that you can read uh, ahead. Um, so you come to, uh, to the sermon time knowing where, where we're going in, in God's word. I'm going to start... Uh, off with uh, our truth statement for this passage we'll uh, have up on the screen for you. Uh, God's people can trust him to guide and provide for them so that they can follow him. Right? God's, God's people can trust that God will give us what we need, that he'll provide for us, that he will guide us um, so that we can follow him. We're just saying uh, about how great God's faithfulness is. Um, and I look around this room, and we've got some people that have been following Jesus uh, more decades than I've even been alive. And I've gotten to hear from some of you uh, your, your stories about God's faithfulness over and over again in your life. And even if you haven't walked with Jesus uh, that long, um, if you do know Jesus, you can tell stories about his faithfulness, how, how God has provided for you over and over again throughout your life. So, uh, so we're, we're going to look in, 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 at David's life and realize that, that we can trust God, that he will guide us, he will provide us so that we can follow him. And, and three points that I'll make along the way. One is that in everything, whether it's big or small, uh, God provides uh, and, and will do what is right in his time and in his way. The second point is that God rewards righteousness and faithfulness. He loves it when his people live righteous, faithful lives, and he rewards us for that. And the last is that trusting God is continuous. Right? There's never a break from it. It's day by day. It's moment by moment. So let's jump into chapter 25, right off the bat in verse 1. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. And Samuel has obviously been a key figure throughout the book of 1 Samuel, but we haven't heard much about him in several chapters. And in fact, here we don't even hear much about his death. We just know um, that he has passed. And, and here was a man, a prophet, who spoke God's word faithfully. He continuously pointed the people of Israel back um, to Yahweh. While we aren't given details about his death, uh, he's not done being a part of this story, as we'll see next week. But if you remember from last week's passage, we, we left off just outside of the cave. Uh, David could have taken Saul's life. He had the opportunity, but he chose not to. And, and he proved to Saul that he's not after him, that he means him no harm. And Saul leaves swearing that he will not kill David, that he'll stop. Uh, pursuing after David, and he heads home. Uh, but David doesn't go back with him, right? David's suspicious. David is, is not stupid. He's heard from Saul before that, that he's not going to harm him. Well, verse 1 continues, Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran, and there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel, now the, man, uh, or the, now the name of that man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. 
David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David's been hiding out in the wilderness with his men. And we're told that there's this man named Nabal. And I don't know why your parents named you what they named you. I don't know if they, they looked into what your name meant and chose your name because it was like, I don't know, noble person. I don't, I don't know what, what, what your name may mean. Me and my wife, we just chose names that sounded good. Uh, we, we, liked, we like how our, our kids' names sound. Uh, if you don't know this, our third child, um, uh, his middle name is Flash. <laughs> okay, that's no joke. Um, our, our two older kids, they're like, we want a superhero in the family, and they broke us down over nine months, and we, we named his middle name Flash. So we didn't care really about what their name meant. We, a couple of the names, we might not even know what they mean. Um, Nabal's parents, it's like, what were you thinking? Because the name means fool. Okay? Fool is what they named him, right? And it's not, it's not like a hidden thing, okay? If you go to Psalm 14.1, it says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God, right? That would read, the Nabal says in his heart, there is no God. So we don't know the story yet, but we know that there's a guy named Fool. And we can guess that he's going to do some foolish things. He's rich, he's harsh, he behaves badly. We don't know how the others will respond, though. Will they respond foolishly? Well, Nabal's wife is Abigail. We're told that she is uh, discerning and that she's beautiful. We've been told that the time is, uh, has come for, for shearing of the sheep, and he's got a ton of sheep. He's got 3,000 sheep, and I don't know much about shearing. I did a quick Google search and found out that a decent sheep shearer can earn about $90 an hour, which seems... Pretty decent for, for shearing sheep. So Nabal, he's, he's about to make a lot of money. And David and his men, they've been around Nabal, uh, Nabal's shepherds and his sheep. Um, the shepherds later describe that it's been like there's, there's been this wall around us by day and by night. We haven't lost a single sheep. And obviously, if Nabal loses sheep, he loses money. So David knows that, that Nabal is about to come into some money. He knows that he's been really helpful in making sure that, that his assets have been kept safe. So he asks Nabal, he sends his men and asks for a little thank you gift. All right? And a reasonable person would say, I know I wouldn't have made as much money without their protection. But the problem is Nabal's a fool. Verse 10, Nabal answered David's servants, and he plays dumb. He says, who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their master. So he speaks like he doesn't even know who David is. But, but then he shows his hand because he said, who is the son of Jesse? Well, if you don't know David, how do you know his dad's name? Verse 11, shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I've killed for my shears and give it to men who come from I don't know where? So David's young men turned away. And came back and told him all this. They tell David exactly what Nabal the fool said. So let's see how David handles this news. Verse 13. David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. Remember, David is a man that knows war. David knows how to kill people. Uh, this is what made the episode last week in the cave so shocking. 
If you weren't with us, uh, David's hiding in a cave. Saul, who's trying to kill David, comes into the cave because he has to go to the bathroom. He has to relieve himself. And his men, David's men, see he's right there. He couldn't be more vulnerable. And they say, God is giving you into his hand. Strike him now. You're going to get rid of this problem, the only obstacle to the throne. But he spares Saul's life. He lets Saul out of the cave. He gives this speech proving that, that David is not guilty before Saul. He could have killed him, but he didn't. He trusted God's word. His heart was to honor the Lord. David knew how to kill, but, but he wouldn't. But now with Nabal, in his situation, it's surprising the other way. David is ready to kill not only Nabal, but every man that is with Nabal. David orders his men to grab their swords. He grabs his sword himself. And it's not like he's just trying to look tough here and, and scare Nabal into giving him a gift. No, he's been shamed by Nabal. And he's going to get his honor back that he feels he deserves. Later on, David says, Surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he is returned evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David, and more also if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. But, but remember, we're calling this series God of Reversal. So, so here's the God of Re- Reversals intervening through Nabal's wife. Uh, one of Nabal's men, they hear uh, about David's fury, and they run to Nabal, or uh, sorry, to Abigail. They do not run to Nabal because they say Nabal's worthless. He won't even listen. He's a fool. So they run to Abigail, and they explain how David has protected everything that Nabal owns. And... Um, and that he's ready to kill, and that he's got his men, they've got their swords, and they're on their way. So Abigail wastes no time at all. She springs into action. She loads up donkeys with, with uh, like 200 loaves and a bunch of cakes and raisins and wine, and David's coming with his men, and Abigail comes and intercepts them, and she gets down off the donkey. She bows before him. In verse 24, she says, On me alone. My Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears. Hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow, Nabal. For as his name is, so is he. She confesses, Nabal is a fool. If you're angry, be angry at me. She continues on. She says, Nabal is his name and folly is with him. Every time I've read that line over this last week, I hear Nabal is his name and folly is his game. And I hear it in a British accent too, um, which is funny. So the Lord wrote it better than I would have. Um, We'll keep going. She says, but I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives, as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand. She sees this interception right here that she's doing as God restraining David from shedding blood. Uh, It's God preventing him. It's God giving him an opportunity not to take things into his own hands. And she goes on, she says, Now then, let your enemies and those who seek uh, to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. So Abigail can see that God is preventing here. God is guiding and providing for David so that he doesn't do something that would not be good, so that he doesn't kill 
all of these men so that spilled blood is not on his hands. And then she affirms that God will establish David's house, that, that his, the royal family line, that God will do what he has promised, that God is the one who is fighting David's battles for him. And ultimately, she points uh, uh, him to God and what God will do, and that, that, she, that he can trust in the Lord, even in this thing, that God will act, that God will save him. That in trusting him, David, you won't feel grief over this decision that you've been set on making and killing these men. Verse 32, David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. So he can see that she's right, that God did send her. He says, blessed be your discretion. Blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me truly by morning, there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she would brought him, and he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice, and I have granted your petition. David conceded. She's totally right. David was set on, on saving himself by his own hands, on avenging himself, but Yahweh provided for him so that he didn't have to kill these people. God was going to make a way. It was God who intervened and restrained him. And I wonder, have you observed that happening in your own life? Have you recognized God's provision, often at just the right time, to keep you from sin, to keep you from rebelling against him, to keep you from living like a fool? Maybe you set out on a certain direction, determined to do something, and yet God intervened and he provided for you. One question that... Um, that was just bugging me all week in this passage, was how could David, just before in the cave in chapter 24, how could he show such restraint with Saul, who was trying to kill him? But with Nabal, he's, he's insulted, he's shamed, and now he's ready to, to kill not just Nabal, but all of his servants. And I think we need to remember that the Bible is about real people. We're told Elijah and James, Elijah's a man just like us. He's got a nature like ours. The Bible is full of real people, and we see the good and the bad. And sometimes we, uh, we come in life to this crossroads, and it's really obvious. Am I going to choose the Lord and honor him, or, or am I going to choose what I want? Am, am I going to do what I want? Am I going to be Lord of my life? And there, there's moments, and they seem maybe, maybe like a big test to us. But then there's situations that aren't as obvious to us. Maybe a situation like with Nabal. And maybe this is a blind spot for us, right? We don't see, we don't see as clearly like, yes, this is a choice between trusting the Lord and trusting in myself. Right? David wasn't dealing with a giant here. He wasn't dealing with a king that was after him. He was dealing with a fool. And yet God was so good to intervene for him. God was so faithful. David could trust God with all of his enemies, big or small. In, in everything, David could trust that God 
was good that God would provide in his time and in his way. Well, the next day, Abigail goes uh, to Nabal, and she tells him, I headed off David and his 400 people. So she goes to Nabal and says, hey, David, the guy who's slaughtered Philistines, he was coming, he was headed your way with 400 men, each one of them with a sword, and I intervened. And it says that Nabal's heart just became like a stone. And then 10 days later, he died. And David heard about this, and he recognized that, yep, God, God provided. God was going to work out justice in his way, in his time, that he had, he'd intervened so that David didn't do what he was set to do against Nabal. Then Abigail, uh, after mourning her husband's death, David sends to her and, uh, and, and, and takes her as uh, his wife. Um, and and then the story keeps going. But the Lord that day um, confirmed, I think, a really important lesson for David and for us. That in everything, whether it seems like this giant big test, this, this, this crossroads in life, or, or if it's just a little mundane, everyday thing, that we can trust God in absolutely everything. And we don't know, like David, after the cave, after letting uh, Saul go, did he second guess that? I don't know. We don't know if, if, if some of his closest men said, why did you let him go? Or, or even, just, even in just in his own thoughts, in his heart, did he think, man, that was such a colossal error. I blew it. But God met David. If he had those doubts, he met them in this story with Nabal. David now knew that he could trust God to deal with all his enemies. right? Big ones like Goliath, like King Saul, and, and even little ones that, that really didn't deserve much time like Nabal. But David was to trust God to provide in every circumstance. And David's concern was trusting God and honoring him. And, and we'll see how 25 sets up what happens in 26 again with Saul. So in chapter 26, the Ziphites, they've snitched on David before and told Saul where he was. And again, they do that. They tell, they tell Saul, David's hiding. David's hiding here. So Saul gets 3,000 men. He means business, right? Even though he said he wasn't going to kill, apparently things have changed. He's coming after David with 3,000 men. And it's, I've never traveled with 3,000 people, but it's pretty hard to do that uh, in a sneaky way. It's not exactly like a SEAL team swooping in and performing, performing some uh, secret mission. So David heard, like, hey, there's a giant group of 3,000 men. They all look pretty angry. So David, he, he, uh, he and a, another man named Abishai, they go to see what's happening. And they, sure enough, Saul's there. And when they find their camp, all, all the men are asleep, and Saul's right in the middle of the camp with all of his warriors around him. Abner, his, the head honcho of his army, is there. There's uh, Saul's spear is stuck in the ground right next to him. Um, and David says to Abishai, let's go down there. So verse 7, So David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment with his spear stuck in the ground at his head, and Abner and the army lay around him. Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. This sounds just like the cave. God has given your enemy into your hand this day. We see what we want all the time. We see our desires, and, and, and then circumstances line up, and we say, man, this must be God's will. And that's what Abishai is doing. 
it's not easy for us to see what God wants. It, it, it's not easy for us to take off the, these glasses that, that just look as the flesh looks. And David showed us that in the last chapter, right, when he was just ready to kill, but God intervened. Even though David wanted to take matters into his own hands, God provided for him, and he, he led him in what was good. Abishai affirms what probably every one of us would have affirmed. Right? How often do we see circumstances that sometimes they're ugly, sometimes they're painful, and we chime in with what makes sense uh, to us. And it's like we check our Christianity at the door. We check our, our trust in the Lord and his power and his goodness. And, and we see circumstances like, um, man, like unfaithfulness in a marriage. And, and we'll say, yeah, yeah, she should leave him. Look at what he did. Right? That's, how often is that our default? Right? Not, hey, we, we should fast and pray for this couple. Let's go before our Lord and ask him to heal, ask him to redeem. Right? Do we believe what Hannah said early in, in chapter 2? There's no one like our God. God is not limited. He can redeem anything, but it doesn't take much for us to doubt and, and to see things the way we want to see things. Abishai goes on, he says, Now let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear. I will not strike him twice. Abishai is ready to kill. And we'll see later in 2 Samuel, Abishai is a bloodthirsty man. Like, there's a reason he went into the military. He, he loves to kill, and he's ready to, and he assures David, I won't mess this up. I just need one chance. But David won't be convinced at all. Now, he knows he needs to trust in God, not take matters into his own hands. And he's ready to trust God with the enemy that wants him dead, that's brought 3,000 men here just to kill him. This is what he says in verse 9. Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? It's difficult to imagine that at least at some point, it wasn't attractive for, for uh, David to kill Saul. It would have taken care of so many problems in an instant. But David knew that this would be sin, and it went against his conscience. Sin, it's attractive. It ropes us in. But there's always a sting with it. There's always a cost. What feels so good in a moment costs so much. So even though Abishai's plan was sure, he, he could have killed Saul quite easily. And there would have been some instant relief. David knew the weight of guilt, that it would have been sin. And David counted that cost. He wanted to honor the Lord. And he wasn't about to kill the Lord's anointed. God's pretty clear in Scripture. He says, vengeance is mine. Right? Vengeance is God's business. It is not ours. So will we trust that God will make things right in his perfect justice. David goes on in verse 10. He says, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. David says, I don't know how God's going to do it, but God will do it. God will do it in his time and in his way, and it will be good. He just saw God provide with Nabal. All David had to do was trust was trust that the Lord would do right 
in the Lord's eyes. If David would just be faithful to him, God would reward him. Verse 11, he says, The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed, but take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let's go. So David saved his life. Abishai was ready to kill Saul, and Saul doesn't even know it. Verse 12, so David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head. They went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any wake, for they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. Right? They didn't sneak in there because they were little ninjas. Now, God had caused these people to sleep deeply so that David could come in and do this. So then they scurry up the hill a safe distance away, and David calls out. And first he calls out to Abner, and he's talking trash. He's like, Abner, I thought you were supposed to keep the king safe. How is it that two men snuck into your camp that took the spear that was right next to Saul's head, the jar of water? Abner doesn't even really respond, but Saul chimes in. He says, is that your voice, David? And David makes another brilliant speech. It proves that that he's not trying to kill Saul in any way. He says, if God has stirred you up against me, then I repent. But if it's man, then they, they should be cursed. They've driven me from Israel. They've driven me from my share of the Lord's inheritance to a foreign land with foreign gods. I don't even get to worship Yahweh, the true God, with my people. Verse 21, Saul said, I've sinned. Return, my son David, for I'll no more do you harm, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I've acted foolishly and made a great mistake. And Saul realizes, I think, that that David saved him, and he confesses. Now the question with every time that Saul confesses, is this repentance? Is this genuine repentance? Saul's emotional. Last time in the cave, Saul starts weeping. Like he is emotional. He feels it. My guess is he might mean it right now in this moment. But is there true repentance? I think 2 Corinthians 7.10 helps us here. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Saul confesses. And he, he has a, a, a look, a feel of, of guilt. It, this is, it looks similar, it sounds similar to repentance, but there's no depth that leads to change, right? He doesn't actually turn from his sin. He continues down that same path. And multiple times we see Saul confronted with sin and he regrets it. He feels bad in that moment, but there's no, there's no turning. I wonder, have you been confronted by your sin, right, your rebellion against God? Have you come to see that your sin, it's a big deal? It's an offense against God, and it deserves judgment and wrath. And maybe you feel regret when you sin, but does it lead you to repentance? Does it lead to actual change, turning from your sin in yourself and turning to trusting in God in his salvation? The good news of Jesus is that he offers us forgiveness, that he offers us cleansing from our sins when we turn to him. When we turn from sin and turn to life in Christ, he really does forgive us. We aren't stuck in regret. Saul felt regret. He felt bad, and every one of us knows what it's like to feel the regret of sin. And, and, and maybe I wonder if, if some in the room, you've been carrying regret around for years and years. And the gospel, 
says that we can come to Jesus who died for all of our sin and, and trade him our sin, give him that regret. And he gives us life. He gives us righteousness. Right? He takes our record of sin and, and switches it out with his spotless record. So my dirty account is taken and it's washed clean by Christ. Scripture describes it as being white as snow. So here Jesus offers us life in him, eternal life, if we would turn to him. Saul felt bad. I think he really felt bad in this chapter. But I don't don't think he's repentant at all. We don't see any evidence of that. Verse 22, David answered and said, Here's the spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and take it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness uh, for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord. And may he deliver me out of all tribulation. He doesn't say, my, may my life be precious in your sight. No. He trusts the Lord. He says, may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord. May he deliver me. I want to focus in, though, on on what he says in verse 23. The Lord rewards every man for righteousness and faithfulness. God loves it when his people live righteous, faithful lives. He loves it so much that, that he rewards us for it. He responds to our righteousness and our faithfulness when we trust in him rather than doing what's right by us, right by our standards. He, he rewards us when we trust that, that God is at work and we let his timing and his ways play out. And, and it's funny to me that God rewards us for, for what we can only do because of him, right? The only way we can, we can live righteous lives at all, the only way we can be faithful to him is because he provides for us, he supplies. But God loves it. When we respond that way, Romans 117 uh, tells, uh, tells us that the gospel of Christ reveals the righteousness of God from faith to faith. And then Paul quotes Habakkuk 2, 4. He says, the righteous shall live by faith. This is a big deal to God because God is righteous. God is faithful. So when we live this way, it points to who he is. Righteousness and faith go hand in hand. And, and, and David experienced the reward of that. He experienced in in big moments like in the cave, but also we can experience in in smaller moments like with uh, Nabal. And all the moments in between, do we ask ourselves, how do I live by faith in this? How do I trust the Lord in this? How do I live right before my Lord so as to honor him? How do I trust him in school? How do I trust him in my career How do I trust him in my home? How do I trust God in in singleness? How do I trust God in marriage? How do I trust him on my sports team? How do I trust him as as a widow? How do I trust God with my money? Or how do I trust God with with what I'm entertained by? With work, with, with an unbelieving spouse. I mean, the list goes on and on. We're to trust God with everything. Right? Are we taking matters into our own hands? Am I trying to manipulate things to bring about what I want? Or am I pursuing the Lord in righteousness and faithfulness? Well, Saul responds to David. He says, blessed be you, my son David. 
You will do many things and will succeed in them. And then David goes his way and, and Saul goes his way. And chapter 27, we're, we're not even really going to get into today. Uh, it's, uh, I'm not fully sure if what David does is, uh, is, is right or not. And there's argument about, about what happens in 27. But he, he goes to the Philistines, uh, to King Achish of Gath again, and, and, and he convinces Achish uh, to, that, that he's going to be for him, that he's going to fight battles for him. And Achish gives him a plot of land. And, and David goes out and he, he destroys the enemies that were common both to the Philistines and to Israel. So uh, God was certainly using what he was doing. But I think through all these chapters, we see these, uh, these highs and lows. We're reminded that life is up and down, and, and maybe one moment we're, we're at this pinnacle, uh, the crossroad, right, so to speak, where, where we have to decide are we going to trust Christ or not, and, and we decide to trust Christ, and then not too long after that, we find ourselves in a dark valley, and, and will we trust him there as well? But we know that life's not just lived on the, these peaks and these valleys, but in the in-between, we have to trust him as well, trusting Christ is a continuous thing. It's an everyday thing. It, it, it can be in the mundane things as well. Right? Will I trust Christ in the cubicle? Will I trust Christ at school? Or, or after I've changed the 10th diaper today, will I trust Jesus in this? Trusting God never stops. It's always going. You trusted him a moment ago, but will you continue to trust him now? Let me pray. Jesus, you, you are good. You are so uh, faithful to us, Lord. I thank you for all the ways that you provide for us, Lord, so that we can uh, follow after you. Lord, we have no hope of following you without you supplying everything that we need, and you are so good to do that. Lord, I pray that our hearts would be yours, that we would long to trust in you, but God, that we wouldn't, we wouldn't take things into our own hands, or, the, or when we do, God, would you be so gracious as to show us that? Would you continue to guide us so that we can follow hard after you? And Lord, when we don't, and, and you confront us with our sin, Lord, would we be quick to repent, Lord, to, to truly turn from our ways and turn to you, Jesus, so that we can honor you, Lord, so that everyone can know that you are God. Jesus, it's in your holy name that we pray. Amen.